This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. All right, turning away from uh, the situation with the Calgary Flames, Dave Rose still down at the Dome covering this story. have more in his uh, noon uh, report uh, coming up later today, and uh, we'll follow the story as it uh, advances. Uh, Bob Hartley has something to say. Obviously, we'll, we'll bring that to you as well. I want to turn our attention to, to the leader of the opposition here in Alberta. Uh, certainly, there there's some political developments to talk about uh, with Brian Jean, but uh, it was interesting to see yesterday, uh, Rogers, uh, Brian Jean ad- addressing the legislature this, this burgeoning uh, fentanyl crisis. Uh, that we're trying to to deal with here in Alberta. We we had an expert on last week to say, you know, look, the government needs to be doing way more. They're dragging in their heels on on uh, a real serious response to this crisis. Uh, and now the Wild Rose is, is jumping in to say, you know what, we really do need to to label this as as a crisis, as an emergency. Exactly, a state of emergency like they've called for in British Columbia. Now uh, joining us on the telephone is the leader of the Wild Rose Party, Brian Jean. Uh, Brian, thanks very much for being with us today. Thanks so much, Roger. The fentanyl crisis is something that we've been following on this program for quite some time now, and uh, you're not calling on the government to, to what issue a state of emergency on this one? Absolutely. A uh, state of emergency would be exactly what uh, British Columbia has done, and it would add... Um, tremendous opportunities for Albertans to understand what's going on. First of all, it would uh, do two significant things. It would lead to real-time tracking of the data, which is very important. You can't make proper decisions without looking at the empirical evidence behind it. That's what we focus on, and that's what we will continue to focus on when we ask questions of the government, because this data is very important for understanding what's taking place, and Alberta's data on this problem is stale by the time it gets to the decision-makers, so they can't make accurate decisions to save Alberta's uh, lives. I mean, uh, this is a a situation where there's many lives being lost. In fact, uh, British Columbia is suggesting more than two a day is going to be lost as a result of fentanyl. But the second thing is it also sends the message to government social workers and departments that our two, for instance, I don't know if you knew this, Roger, we have two different public health departments, uh, but this will encourage them and and, uh, the managers will know that they need to throw serious manpower at this particular issue and communicate it because you know roger many people don't understand you know they think that everybody watches tv or everybody has a computer and watches social media or a phone well these people that are addicts don't they live on the streets um they live in places where other people would not live and frankly we need to take more care of them we need to make sure that those people that are addicts that are falling prey to this vicious drug and to the drug dealers that uh you know i'm a tough on uh, tough on crime guy we need to make sure that these people that are living on the streets get a proper campaign that will actually um, communicate to them that means either a sticker campaign that's actually on skid row or a leaflet campaign or these health workers going down on skid row and other places where there are homeless shelters and making sure they understand that just the slightest variation on this drug, just the smallest amount will kill them if it's not done properly. And and frankly, there is no proper thing in this drug. We need to eliminate this drug and make sure drug dealers are kept off our streets. But at the same time, we have to have the social conscience to take care of those people that can't take care of themselves. And you know what? I asked the minister a question yesterday, the premier question yesterday, specifically relating to homeless shelters and uh, the ability to have these programs in place to uh, help people get off these drugs. And there's just not enough. And uh, the fact that people have to spend tens of thousands of dollars of their own money in order to seek treatment for their children is unacceptable. 
Brian, it's uh, Rob here. Uh, in, in terms of what BC is doing, I mean, BC certainly taken some steps to make this uh, life-saving uh, antidote available, and there have been concerns that maybe that's not as widely available in Alberta, which can help save lives. How much of a, a harm reduction approach do, do we need to ensure people aren't dying in the short term? Well, I think what we need is a focused program, first of all. And short term means right now we should be photocopying leaflets, making sure we have our workers, our people that are representing uh, Albertans in the health departments at the area where they can be most effective with the communication tools so they will actually see it. I think it's a matter of primarily education and making sure that there's proper funding in place to educate, to treat, and also to keep these drug dealers um, off the streets. Okay, but well, okay, fair enough. But I mean, you, you kind of skipped the question on uh, regarding naloxone. D- does that need to be made more widely available? What does the province need to do to ensure uh, that it's accessible? Well, first of all, I, you know, I understand they have taken a few minor steps towards making uh, it more accessible. I do believe that the educational program uh, is very, very critical to this because of the nature of. Some educational programs in the past have not been effective. I do believe that, uh, you know, the drugstores should have it uh, available, that these homeless shelters um, and the places around that, you know, the streets that these people live um, have have it accessible, not just the rural areas, that, uh, you know, ar- around. We need to focus directly to the vulnerable populations to warn them of the dangers of fentanyl and to make sure that these, these um, safety nets, whether it be people or... Uh, antidotes uh, are there and available and to ensure that the social agencies themselves that serve these people have emergency treatments available on site. So I think it needs to be wider dispersed and the educational component needs to be not just with drug users, but also the people that are there for the safety net for them, um, the workers, the the volunteers, so they understand how to make sure it's available when and if they need it. And they understand the signs of, um, of the, the addicts, when they're on this drug and they are suffering as a result. Right. I think the question eventually, though, comes down to, would you be in favor of giving naloxone directly to known fentanyl addicts uh, in the event that they should overdose? Well, you know, I have to to have it ahead of time, I mean. No, um, I have to tell you, this is not something that Brian Jean is an expert on. I saw the effects of crime firsthand because I, I was a lawyer up in Fort McMurray for over 10 years dealing with this type of thing. And I have had a family member itself um, die in the Priest River area. One of my nieces died as a result of fentanyl. Um, and uh, this type of drug, just we have to take control. You don't understand um, how minor of a change, how minor of a difference in a, uh, this drug will kill kill a person, and so when right. young young people are at a party and they take a couple of pills, um, you know they may think it's a, for a good time, but the truth is it might be a, a situation that seriously kills them just because it's you know somebody didn't know what they were doing just by one step. And what right. we need to do, I think, is educate them. And and certainly, uh, I do believe that more social workers should be should be educated and trained on dealing with this. But I am not the expert that that knows what to do. But I do believe we should have um, this. Uh, this state of emergency declared so that okay. the, the professionals can make those recommendations. And if I can say this, um, 
I'm going to speak directly with those who work with vulnerable populations and who are victimized by fentanyl. I'll be meeting with social agencies this morning, and I'm hoping to get more educated because, as I said earlier on the program, uh, empirical evidence is absolutely critical. And then again later this afternoon, I'm going to be meeting with more to discuss how to tackle this problem okay. together as legislators and as social agencies. I've been involved with many for many years, and I think that uh, it's absolutely critical that we have frontline experience that are directing the campaign, right? Okay, not, not Brian Jean and politicians. Okay, but Brian Jean, you're characterizing the the the, the problem in two different ways. Uh, on one hand, you're saying that this is an issue that is uh, rampant on skid rows and amongst addicted populations, uh, uh, populations of drug addicts, uh, broadly speaking. But then you also characterized it as kids at a party who take a pill, not knowing that one minor permutation in this uh, formula uh, can be absolutely lethal. So you would have two different approaches, uh, it, it seems, to this. Uh, I mean, social workers aren't going to be going to house parties where kids might be doing drugs. That's the place where you need to uh, give kids access to the, the naloxone or the antidote, don't you think? Well, I think it has to be available, but I, I don't think it's two-pronged approach. I certainly think we should take a multifaceted approach, as many as possible, with the experts uh, contributing to that. But the skid row people, uh, the people that live in those are the people that started off in the parties, um, you know, in the rural area, rural areas or urban areas. And they, they tried it a couple of times and all of a sudden they're addicted and then they've got no place to live. Uh, they can't have a job. Well, they, okay, that's they, one case study, sir. But I think that the, the, the uh, fentanyl crisis... I I saw it for years. It's uh, it's something that I saw for years. Yeah, I don't, I don't deny it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's uh, switch our attention to to uh, what's happening politically in Alberta, and uh, obviously you're aware of this this meeting that occurred uh, over the weekend in Red Deer, and, and a call by delegates there to, or at least those in attendance there to to create uh, a new party that is in theory to act as a, some kind of a new vehicle to unite the right in Alberta. What, what do you make of this approach? Well, I don't think uh, I, I'm. There's no secret. To anyone, it's no secret to anyone that I'm very interested in consolidating conservatives behind one voice, uh, one effort, and one movement in Alberta. And, and I believe truly that the Wild Rose Party is the best suited and the only one that can truly take on the NDP and, and be the one voice and consolidate conservatives behind one voice in Alberta. But uh, the fact that they're considering and moved a motion to to have a third party is certainly not helpful, and I don't think it's a movement in the right direction. In fact, yesterday uh, I saw uh, Brian Mason, of course, be very happy with the suggestion that we have another party on the uh, right. I think this is exactly what the NDP wants to do, is to split our vote. But I do want to be clear. There was a lot of good, good people at these meetings and involved in these third party groups, and I'm hoping that those individuals that are the right people will come behind the wild rose will contact me directly um so i can find out exactly what we are missing if anything uh if it wasn't just going there for information and i want those people to be involved in the wild rose so they can help us set the agenda for the future of alberta because i do believe we will be the next government and if we have that privilege we will serve albertans well and better with more input from more grassroots members yeah, it's a good point to note there were a lot of good people and very interested and uh passionate people there but they only numbered in the hundreds uh, do you feel that yes, the, the Wild Rose Party, as it stands today, could win an election against the NDP, or do you think that you have to uh, do something to broaden your appeal more generally? You know, truthfully, I believe that we would re receive, uh, based on our polling information over the last uh, four cycles, four months, that we would receive a majority government from the people of Alberta right now. But I don't think we can ever sit on our laurels and accept our current situation. We need to improve. We need to wi widen and broaden our base and make sure that all Albertans feel that we are winning their hearts and minds through serving them properly. Uh, that's what we are here for. We are to serve Albertans and to serve them properly uh, and to reflect their values and views. 
and to make sure that they feel that their government is actually working hard and fighting for their priorities. And that's what Wild Rose wants to do. So we're never going to be satisfied with where Wild Rose is. We will always step forward and step up to make sure that we can uh, do a better job because I truly believe that we can always be better and we will be better as time goes, especially with more input from these good people, from these organizations. And I, I would clearly say that I would challenge them to come forward and tell me, tell us, what we could do on a one-on-one meeting, on a group meeting, on what we can do better for them to reflect their values and views. And I have had an opportunity to speak to many of those people that were at this meeting. Uh, some were disgusted, frankly, with how, how uh, it went. Uh, but most of the people said to me that they, they clearly feel that we, as a Wild Rose, are going in the right direction. And uh, the f- very fact that we would reach out and talk to as many of these people, these good people, as we possibly could, uh, indicated to them that we want their input and we want to be better for them. All right. Brian Jean, great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us here this morning. Really appreciate this. As always, uh, gentlemen, I, I truly appreciate it, and I like your show very much, and all the best to your listeners. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Uh, all the best to you as well. Likes our show. I, I like it, too. <laughs> Uh, On that, we're all in agreement. No, I'm still on the fence. I'll I'll, (laughs) I'll render my decision at a later date. So there you have it, uh, Brian Jean's uh, characterization of the fentanyl situation in Alberta right now, Um, asking the NDP to uh, declare a state of emergency, as well as some thoughts, uh, Rob, on uh, something we discussed yesterday in the 10 o'clock hour, that meeting for uh, uh, Alberta Can't Wait. Uh, Let's do this. We're late for a break. We'll take one right now. We'll come back with some more analysis uh, on that interview. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. And welcome back, 974-8255, if you want to weigh in on what you heard uh, Brian Jean say. He is the leader of the Her Majesty's Loyal Opposition right here in the province of Alberta. I feel like he mischaracterizes the, uh, the fentanyl crisis a little bit by um, kind of starting at skid rows and homeless people and not really recognizing that opiate addiction is pretty widespread and that um, I think that the more we get to know fentanyl overdose victims, we're going to find out that their sons and daughters, nieces and nephews, brothers and sisters, co-workers, et cetera, et cetera, that this isn't something that is uh, uh, a dandelion growing in the gutter, so to speak. No, but I mean, at the same time, look, in fairness, and we talked about it last week, and we talked about how um, safe injection sites can maybe play a role in uh in in helping people know what it is they're taking or helping deal with an overdose having medical personnel on hand and and so obviously those are the kind of people that would be using safe injection site now i i didn't get the sense that that would be something necessarily uh, the kind of approach that brian gene would support but to that end i I don't think he's he's uh totally out of line saying that there's that side of this problem and that kind of a response is more aimed at that side of the problem uh, but yeah, we, we talked about it. Uh, we, we've talked about it before. We've spoken with family members of, of uh, people who have uh, overdosed. And of course, uh, we had Reg Hampton, formerly of, of CTV, right, who, uh, whose son was, was near death as a result of an overdose and uh, was one of the lucky ones who uh, recovered, bounced back, but had no idea what it was he was taking. And uh, I, I don't know how you deal with that side of the problem. Um, very quickly here. It, it seems to me, and you know, we've interviewed uh, Brian Jean, the Wild Rose leader, quite a few times. And now that we've got, um, I would say, some some uh, groups with some wind in their sails as far as this Unite the Right movement goes, uh, both in the Alberta Prosperity Fund, now this group called uh, Albertans Can't Wait. Um, it seems to me as though there's like a legitimate contender now on this side of the spectrum. And the PCs and the Wild Rose are kind of like perked up. 
and they're kind of changing their game plan a little bit. Did it seem to you like Brian Jean was trying to be a little bit more than just the uh, leader of the Wild Rose Party? He was trying to sort of be the the welcoming uh, uh, neighbor, trying to bring you into the the you uh, bring you into the community center, if you will. Well, no, look, one of the knocks on the Wild Rose has been, hey, well, you guys wear your ideas. Uh, you, you don't want to be taken as a, a potential governing party. Uh, you, you need to, to talk about more than just, I won't raise your taxes. You need to come forward with ideas and solutions and sound constructive. Uh, so I think by addressing the fentanyl crisis, and, and look, as Brian Jean said, I mean, he's, he's seen that side of it within his own family. Uh, but to, to recognize that it's not just about the budget. There are other issues uh, that we're dealing with in Alberta. And I, I don't think you can be a serious party and not address this, this fentanyl crisis. So I think, it, it, I think they're, they're trying to be constructive on this. And I think trying to show Albertans that, that look, we're, we're not a, a one-issue party. Uh, we've got real ideas. We're prepared to, to tackle these, these other challenges that, that we're dealing with here in Alberta today and to show where we think the government's missing the boat and where we would... Uh, try to address the problems. I, I, I think it's good that the parties are willing to talk about these other kinds of issues. I, I think there there was a lot of vagueness in what, what Brian Jean said, and uh, but I, I think it's a step in the right direction. Sure it is. He invited people, too, into the tent, which I think they've been doing all along, uh, to say, come to, come to me, I mean us, <laughs> bring us your uh, bring us your concerns, bring us your ideas, uh, bring us your thoughts and feelings about the political landscape in this uh, in this province. Now, I wonder if that means uh, buy a ticket, come to our AGM, and vote on our policies, and uh, in fact try and get your uh, your CAs to put some policy uh, motions forward at at our AGM. I, I I I wonder if that horse has already left the barn for this party. I wonder. I mean, if they're going to grow uh, the voter base. I think that they're going to have to do it uh, uh, in an election and have a platform that, like you said, Rob, is more than just a one-trick pony and that shows that, yeah, they, they are interested in uh, in some of the things that have kept them in the wilderness. Well, and I think that they want to keep growing the party, and I think they, they want to do that. Uh, it seems as though they're, they're keeping a lot, uh, you know, they're keeping their powder dry on a lot of things until 2019, um, which, you know, is, is risky. I think when people are assessing the lay of the land right now and uh, what, what conservatives should do. And you know, by the way, Danielle Smith is going to have more coming up at 1230 today on this call for a, a new political party on the right or where the whole movement goes from here. So more follow up on that later on. We got to take a break here, though. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. I'm Roger. That's Rob. This is pretty interesting news. And I don't know why I, I attach you to this uh, this issue, Rob. But when the uh, uh, when this news broke last week that we've got a, a major um, medical body of any sort in the world advocating for the widespread use of e-cigarettes to combat cigarette smoking, I feel like uh, maybe you give it like you know brush it off a little bit, pat on the back, because I know that you've written about this, and I know you're not here to like you know rah-rah yourself or anything like that. But this, to me, has made a lot of sense. And there's been a lot of people dug in on e-cigarettes to uh, help smokers get off the tobacco habit, and you've been one of them. Well, and, I, you know, it just it frustrates me, I, I think, the way this debate has unfolded. I mean, look, I, I got two kids. I, I don't want them taking up e-cigarettes. Uh, and, and I think that's how a lot of people are looking at it, uh, that if nobody's currently using e-cigarettes, do we really want those people taking up the habit? Uh, but, you know, more to the question, though, of, well, who's actually using e-cigarettes and why are they using e-cigarettes? And it, it seems to be largely smokers to either reduce their cigarette consumption or maybe as a means of, of quitting altogether. 
Uh, that certainly the usage of e-cigarettes very much mimics cigarettes. Uh, there's obviously, not, not always, uh, but there's, there's nicotine contained in, in the liquid that's heated up in these devices. And if it's another means of getting nicotine that's not a cigarette, is there some potential health benefit in that? And, and that's what the Royal College of Physicians in the UK has come up with, a major new report uh, that finds that this kind of harm reduction approach uh, could go a long way. That in fact, e-cigarettes, um, really for all intents and purposes, prevent almost all the harm from smoking. And that's that's uh, what they found. Let's uh, get our guest on the line here. This is uh, Dr. John Britton, who is chair of the Royal College of Physicians Tobacco Advisory Group, actively involved in this report. Professor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, give us an overview then of, of why the RCP uh, felt it was important to address this, this question and, and how you came at the question. Well, electronic cigarettes are, have been very have been very contentious in the UK, just as I know they have in Canada and elsewhere. And we, the college, a few years ago in 2007, produced a report arguing that if we could separate nicotine from tobacco smoke, so that smokers could get the nicotine they're addicted to without all the toxins in smoke, we would prevent a loss of premature deaths and disability. And at that stage, electronic cigarettes, I remember, were just beginning to appear on the market. Since then, they've taken off and become extremely popular. And so we wanted to look at the evidence on long-term harms and the risks, as you said in your introduction, of children taking up electronic cigarettes and many other uh, worries and concerns that people have expressed. And produced this report just by summarizing the evidence we could find to date and came to the conclusion that most of those concerns, whilst valid, are, are not a problem in practice. In the UK, electronic cigarettes are proving to be very positive for public health. Okay, so, so just to sort of reiterate then, the concern that people use electronic cigarettes as a gateway to tobacco or that uh, the use of e-cigarettes normalizes tobacco smoking... Uh, those are unfounded by the research that you've conducted. We found, particularly looking at UK evidence, but also a lot of international evidence, that use, as you said again in your introduction, tends to be concentrated in existing smokers. The proportion of never smokers in Britain that uses electronic cigarettes is well under half of 1%. So although I can't say to you that no child has become an electronic cigarette user or won't in the future. Uh, the, practice, the reality is that those people are very few and far between. The great majority of users are using the product to protect themselves from the damage that smoking will certainly do to them. Certainly the, the regulatory approach we've seen thus far in Canada, and that includes here in the city of Calgary where we are, is to, to regulate e-cigarettes the same as we do cigarettes to to essentially treat them the same under law and i think you know what this report underscores is that there are some some significant differences obviously then between e-cigarettes and combustible uh tobacco cigarettes how much do we need to to emphasize that point um it, i don't think we can emphasize it enough these are different products uh electronic cigarettes are not tobacco products and it makes no sense to regulate them as tobacco products what we need in any country with a significant tobacco problem is a regulatory system that allows products to come to market and enjoy freedoms on that market in direct relation to their safety. 
So we should be regulating tobacco cigarettes extremely heavily. We should be making them very, very much more expensive, harder to get hold of, but at the same time encouraging smokers to switch to safer products. And electronic cigarettes are one of those safer products. Our, does it sorry? Does it discourage that switch then by treating them the same? Um, if, it, if you treat them the same, first of all, it uh, makes it harder for people to use the products, um, but also it sends out the message that these are the same. And so in Britain, we still have a high proportion of smokers, I can't quote you the exact figures, who believe that electronic cigarettes are as hazardous as tobacco cigarettes. And they're getting that from those in authority and those in medicines who are telling them that that's the case. But it's not true. Electronic cigarettes, we don't know how long, how hazardous they are in the long term, but we can make a pretty clear guess, an estimate, that it is a very small proportion of the risk of tobacco. We think certainly not more than 5%, and as time passes and the products get better, it'll be even less. Professor, do you get the impression that regulators and uh, governments uh, are hesitant to make the same error of being laissez-faire with these cigarettes, the same error that they made with uh, tobacco in its inception? Um, I'm sure there's a, a, an aspect of that, and there's a lot of concern that the tobacco industry is getting involved in the electronic cigarette market, and we can be sure that they'll exploit it to, to maximize their profit, not uh, for people's health. And many people are so frightened and so wary of the tobacco industry that they say that anything the industry is interested in has to be bad for public health, so let's just ban it. Mm. But we've got to be sensible about this. Tobacco smoking is highly addictive. It would be nice if we could just encourage and succeed in encouraging all existing smokers to quit. But we know from the bitter... Uh, experience of time that that's not the case if you're smoking on your 25th birthday in britain there's a nearly even chance you'll still be smoking on your 60th birthday if you survive that long we need more effective ways to get smokers off tobacco and this is one way of doing it what are, what are the harms associated with nicotine it, it seems that a lot of the the harms from cigarette use comes from from other factors and other ingredients in the cigarettes so if we look at nicotine uh, how concerned should we be about nicotine use? Well, I, I mean, if, as you said in your introduction, again, if you've got children, I've got four children, I wouldn't want any of them to become addicted to nicotine. But uh, if they are going to experiment with these products, I'd much rather it was pure nicotine than tobacco, simply because uh, nicotine itself puts your heart rate up, it puts your blood pressure up, but it doesn't make you feel that great. Uh, unlike many other drugs that, that teenagers might experiment with. And long-term, the evidence is very clear that any, that any hazard from using nicotine is very small indeed. And it's probably on a par with the risks of using caffeine, you know, which, we, which we all, nearly all of us, accept and enjoy and just use for what it is. Uh, yes, uh, a couple of times this morning already, in fact, uh, Professor. Um, what, <laughs> so I, I feel there's an economic argument in this, too, and it's predicated upon the, the idea that we have X amount of deaths every year caused by cigarette smoking, and that is uh, pretty close to a known, uh, like 100% we know. Uh, if the number would be smaller on e-cigarettes, then it makes economic sense for us to replace the tobacco cigarettes with electronic cigarettes. 
You think that uh, that uh, jurisdictions, particularly those that uh, have publicly funded health care, should move to e-cigarettes and promote e-cigarettes just on that statement alone? Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. In Britain, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence produced guidance on tobacco harm reduction uh, in 2013, and they looked at the cost-effectiveness of switching people from uh, tobacco to medicinal nicotine, and electronic cigarettes are not as clean as medicinal nicotine, but as time passes, they're not going to be far away from it. And the cost-effectiveness uh, equations were all immensely overwhelmingly positive. So we will prevent a lot of disease, a lot of health service use, and also a lot of loss of productivity from smoking breaks and litter and fires and all of the other adverse effects of tobacco addiction. So there are huge benefits to be had, and it makes no economic sense to perpetuate tobacco. Do you, do you go so far, though, as to say that, that um, these should be promoted, like that medical colleges should be promoting uh, e-cigarette use, which is, I guess, to say that like doctors should be prescribing them to smokers? Well, we, we can't, in Britain anyway, we can't prescribe them yet anyway, because there isn't an a electronic cigarette with a medicine's license. And the idea of the cleanest way to use nicotine is medicinally licensed nicotine, nicotine replacement therapy. So my advice to smokers that I treat is generally to use nicotine replacement therapy or the anti-smoking drug, varenicline, uh, with behavioral counseling to help them quit. That's the most effective way of doing it. But those who would like to use an electronic cigarette alongside medicinal nicotine or prefer just to use electronic cigarettes, then that's fine because it's certainly better than nothing and is more like, much more likely to succeed than nothing. But then there's all the many smokers who never seek out help with their smoking. 90% in Britain of smokers never go to their doctor and ask for help to quit. But if we can give them the choice when they walk into the tobacconist to buy an electronic cigarette instead of a tobacco cigarette, what we're finding is that millions do. And of those millions, there's a proportion that quit as a result. And that's the whole prize that we're after. The fewer people that smoke, the better for everybody. Did you look at the question of, of secondhand vapor, I guess? We, we know about the dangers of secondhand smoke, and many of our, our regulations are... are based in part to protect non-smokers, but is there a, a similar threat from, from e-cigarette use? There isn't a significant threat from electronic cigarette use. I think there's a nuisance effect, yeah. and mm -hmm. there's, an issue, there's a courtesy and etiquette issue of using the product in enclosed spaces with other people who, who, who don't use and don't want you to use them, but it is just a courtesy issue. On health grounds, I don't see any reason not to use the products indoors, particularly not the ones that the, the ones that don't produce a cloud of, of vapor, and that's many of them. And furthermore, as time passes, we will have licensed electronic cigarettes, and we're not going to say to people, you cannot use a drug that's been prescribed to you by your doctor indoors because we don't like the look of it. Are we going to say that with asthma medications or other inhaled drugs? I think not. Yeah, it's a good point. So, so what should happen then with uh, with this report, uh, Professor? What what should uh, various governing agencies do? Um, well, outside of the UK, it, it, it's up to it's up to others. In our in the UK, we're arguing that we should be uh, continuing to uh, integrate harm reduction approaches into our tobacco control strategy. And to the credit of our last two governments, both have 
acknowledge the potential contribution of harm reduction, but it's only of late that the electronic cigarette market and technology has developed enough to make a significant impact. And so I think we've got to capitalize on that opportunity to encourage as many smokers as possible to use them. If you're a smoker listening to this and you've never tried an electronic cigarette, my advice is to go out and buy one and try it. Well said. Professor Britton, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. That's John Britton with the Royal College of Physicians in the UK. He is chair of the RCP's Tobacco Advisory Group and played a key role in this, uh, I would say, fairly landmark uh, study. Hopefully, this will, uh, I, I think, help impact and shape the debate in this country going forward. Uh, but I think uh, that this kind of research is much needed. Listen, let's take a break here. We'll come back. Uh, your thoughts, your reaction to what you just heard here. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. All right, 974-8255 is our telephone number. You can text us at 770-770, as this uh, individual did. It says, e-cigarettes are awesome for quitting smoking. I tried everything else, bought an e-cigarette a week later, threw a half a pack of smokes in the garbage because I couldn't stand the taste of them. I used the e-cig for about six months, slowly lowered concentrations of nicotine over time. I've been smoke and vape-free for almost two years now. Give all credit to the invention of the e-cigarette. If not for the e-cigarette, I would still be smoking a pack a half a day, paying about $90 a week to slowly kill myself. So that's an anecdote, obviously, but that's, that's pretty compelling. Yeah, not the only one. Uh, someone else texted in to say I was a heavy smoker for 30 years, never went back when I started vaping in June of last year. My blood pressure dropped and skin problems cleared up. You know, this look, I, I think that most smokers, um, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say this. Most smokers would like to quit for a couple of reasons. One, they know the health benefits of doing so, and two, they uh, I would like to save the money. Um, I know for myself when I smoked, I, I, I smoked because I really liked the taste and uh, so quitting, man, I was giving up the taste, but I got all the benefits, money back, and uh, I guess my health is, is improved dramatically, too. But um, look, you listen to Professor John Britton, who's the chair of the, uh, the RCP, which is the Royal College of Physicians in the UK, saying, if you are a cigarette smoker and you haven't tried e-cigarettes yet, you should go out and buy one. That was his, like, recommendation at the end of the interview. And I guess he can do that with a pond between us, Rob, and it's not like a... <laughs> an official recommendation from any uh, local group here in Canada. But it's it's striking to me because we've been down this road waiting for Health Canada to to have like a pretty firm policy on the matter, you know, and, and to come to either the support of e-cigarettes or to tell us what all the toxic constituents are that makes Health Canada opposed to widespread e-cigarette use. We've been waiting for our politicians to do the same thing. And I, I really think that the biggest problem with e-cigarettes is the etiquette thing. People using them in public and letting off huge clouds of steam. Right. Well, like, for one thing, I don't know. I mean, Health Canada has been weird on this because uh, they, they just really haven't done anything. I mean, technically, it's not allowed. There's no approved e-cigarette product that contains nicotine in Canada. Uh, but uh, people are getting it anyway. So Health Canada's just kind of been asleep on the job. And unfortunately, that's created a void where cities think that they need to step in and regulate this. And I like the, the city of Calgary bylaw, what is it we're trying to accomplish? How are we defining success under this bylaw? Uh, and, and I think, unfortunately, we're just going to say, oh, well, look, fewer people are using e-cigarettes. It must be working. And even if that's the outcome, how is that a positive? I, I mean, we would look at the smoking bylaw and say we want fewer people smoking cigarettes. That was the whole point. And if we've now created an e-cigarette bylaw that is counterproductive to the previous objective, then how is that a, a positive at all? That, that to me, it's, it's a step backward. 
Um, you know, the conclusion of this report is that in the interest of public health, it is important to produce, uh, promote rather the use of e-cigarettes, nicotine replacement therapies, and other non-tobacco nicotine products as widely as possible as a substitute for smoking in the UK. They want to hasten our progress to a tobacco-free society. That's what they're calling for. You heard him say in that interview, we should be making cigarettes far more expensive than they are. Of course, someone emailed me to say, boy, is this prof a shill for Philip Morris? <laughs> boy, I, I don't think Philip Morris wow. wants to make cigarettes as expensive as possible. And I don't think Philip Morris wants a day where we have a, a tobacco-free world. That's what they're calling for. And that's just, that's ridiculous ad hominem. Yeah, but that's a moronic text message too. Uh, because uh, first of all, there's a con- uh, conspiracy theorists. Look, not everything is a shill, Okay. And when we live in a society right now where we are making it as difficult as, as possible to be a smoker, we're ostracizing smokers as much as possible. No, you can't. You, you got to go outside, but don't you think about smoking near the door. You get five meters away from that door, mister, or whatever the bylaw is. Mm-hmm. We have basically told smokers in the city of Calgary, you are persona non grata. Get out. And we're doing that in more and more and more jurisdictions. Now, here's the point, though. The word that stands out to me in the conclusion of that Royal College of Physicians report is the word promoted. Because the point has to be, if you want people to stop smoking, give them something else to do. Don't just say, hey, go do that somewhere else. Say, do this instead. And that's how you get people off the cigarettes. That's why I asked the question, should doctors be prescribing them? Can't do that yet. But boy, if I'm one of these city councilors who's going to say, uh, we need to uh, do what we can to, to keep people from smoking, or if I'm one of these politicians who's going to say, hey, we need to ban menthol cigarettes, then I'm going to be right there. The last thing I'm going to say is, go get yourself one of these, buy the mint-flavored version of it. You're going to get a great fix. You're going to love it. It's going to make you a lot healthier. Because that's how we get people to break the bad habit. Let's go to the phones here, 974-8255. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the program. Hi there. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I was a smoker for about 15 years. I went on e-cigarette about three years ago, and uh, I think I ended up quitting within about two months of starting on that. And I'm just, I'm just curious. I don't, I didn't hear the doctor raise any uh, points concerning the, like, the, what's in the juice, like what, what exactly is in it, other than just, you know, water and flavor and nicotine. Propylene glycol. Yeah, propylene gly- glycol, vegetable glycerin. Uh, I, I think that that's primarily what's used. Part of the problem right now in Canada is that Health Canada's sort of thrown up its hands or not doing anything. I mean, we, that's the whole thing. There's such an opportunity where we can say, all right, you know what? We think there's a potential benefit from e-cigarettes, but we're going to make sure that the ingredients are strictly regulated. If you want to sell e-cigarettes in Canada, here's what they can contain. Here's what they can't contain. And, and I think we, we've missed that opportunity. Yeah, because I'm not saying it was any any better, any worse. I'm not a doctor. I'm just saying that it worked for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if there was health concerns at the time. I'm not sure if there's different juices with different stuff in them. I'm just curious to know, like you said, there's got to be a policy in place or regulations to, to say what's allowed in this juice and what's not and if it's okay. But uh, that's kind of what I was wondering, um, if that's kind of across the board in certain jurisdictions of the yeah. world. No, yeah, I think that's a great question, but I, I'm going to go back to something that I said. Uh, and thanks for the phone call, Ryan. Really appreciate it. I'm going to go back to something that I said in the interview with John Britton, the chair of the Royal College of Physicians. And that's that if we've got numbers of tobacco deaths, tobacco-related deaths uh, every year, and it would be a demonstrably lower number if everybody was smoking e-cigarettes, then you would want everybody smoking e-cigarettes. Wouldn't you? Let's just do the simple math. If one million people a year die from smoking cigarettes, 
and half a million people die every year from e-cigarettes, even if that's the case. Which would you rather? You want the lower death toll. So since we know that tobacco is this harmful and that e-cigarettes aren't, we should switch. Promote it. Well, we should. Why, why wouldn't we? I mean, and that, that's, that's the key. And, and the fear is that you'd still have smokers, but you'd have people taking up e-cigarettes, and then maybe they'd become smokers, that somehow it's a gateway. And you ask the question, and it's pretty clear in, the, uh, in this report, uh, that there was no evidence that uh, smoking is being renormalized, that smoking's acting as a gateway, or, or anything like that. So, again, that, that's what this report is. It's a review of the evidence. Let's uh, squeeze in uh, Cliff's call here. Cliff, go ahead. Yeah, I'll just get quick here. I think that, uh, it's first of all, it's very puzzling on the face of it, why the government refuses to uh, take a, 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 uh, a structured approach to um, dealing with uh, vaping or e-cigs and so on. And my belief is that uh, when, when they get around to um, formulating that response, what's going to become clear to the public, if it's not already, is that um, a similar basis, which underlies the war on drugs, uh, is invalid. There's nothing... There's no, nobody's proposed that uh, vaping is, uh, is is medically less favorable than something which is perfectly legal, which is, you know, uh, t- tobacco source nicotine addictions, supporting that. No. Nope. So okay. When, when nope. you, when you, yep. Yeah. Uh, what, what's going to happen is people are going to say, well, why is vaping illegal? Oh, on the same basis as marijuana and all the other self-harm agents that we're throwing people in prison for. Okay. Um, it's not illegal yet, obviously, but we're, we're treating it like tobacco smoke, which is the wrong approach. And when we come back from the news to 1130, we're going to talk about the ice in your iced coffee and how much is too much. And by too much, I mean, at what point can you sue for $5 million bucks? We're going to get into this Starbucks case after the news. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge, weekdays starting at 930 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.